You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Well, here we go. It's been a little bit of a weekend. Uh, good morning. I am uh, Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and it is good to be with you. I uh, got to marry off my uh, eldest daughter yesterday, so that's pretty exciting. I thought, yeah, I uh, thought she'd be here this morning. Not sure what's going on, already making bad decisions, huh? But it's a it's a real uh, it's a, also a real honor because we've got Pastor Pastor and Mrs. Rose with us this morning. It is so good to see you guys. It's kind of intimidating having you right here. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to look over, you know. And then I've also got my mother and father with us today. And my brother and his wife. Jordan, and my sister and her family, and my brother and his wife and family, and that's not half of them. So, uh, but we're we're such. It's just such. Thank you guys for coming. I came from all over. But in fact, I had a sister that they had to take to the airport this morning uh, from Utah that came in to be with us. So, what a wonderful thing. Today is week forty-three. I don't want to keep going, right? You want to get to the point this morning? <laughs> Today is week 43 in our study of the Gospel of St. Mark. So be sure to grab a Mark Field Journal if you don't have one. Darius is right back there. There's a table that has a few extras. So if you, it's, it's got the, the scripture kind of on one page of the text and then a uh, note section on the next page. So those are free for you and uh, for you to use and keep with you. Just make sure you write your name in it. So when, not if, but when you leave them, we can get them back to you uh, the following week. We will be in chapter 10, starting in verse 1 in just a moment. By way of reminder, Mark's uh, record is understood to be the earliest account of Jesus' life and ministry. It was written to a Roman audience. He was likely St. Peter's protege and uh, compiled these stories and teachings um, that he would have gleaned from his time together with Peter and from listening to Peter's sermons throughout his gospel, Mark, juxtaposes the faith found in the hopeless and helpless outcasts of society with those who should have believed. And I seem to find myself sometimes, I think, in the category of Christ running into this resistance and blindness from his hometown folks and his family, those confident in their religiosity and those secure in this life. Even his own disciples couldn't see it, but yet he'd find faith in a woman in another country. Mark repeats a series of themes that he's weaving in three overarching concentric circles. Christ's power over the effects of the fall, his power over sin, his power over demons, his power over death. And each time, each each series of these culminating in his telling the disciples what's about to happen to him. All moving towards an inflection point that will take place in Jerusalem in just a few days, namely Christ's impending torture, crucifixion, and resurrection. And Mark is repeatedly revealing, like peeling back the layers of an onion, what it looks like to truly see, believe, and follow Jesus as Messiah. From his opening sentences, 
Mark is declaring Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he gets right to the point, and he drives it home with each cycle of narrative like a hammer striking a nail with masterful strokes. So it's important to recognize that Mark also here has to be judicious with what he includes in these pages. This account was written on parchment paper, right, for ease of distribution. Space was limited. So every word is intentional. Every story is particularly placed. And this is especially true of the teachings of Jesus that Mark includes. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't redact for convenience. And he makes no effort, clearly, to avoid controversy. Last week, we looked at one of those hard teachings of our Lord, a powerful warning to his followers to continue to do whatever it takes to avoid hell. That's hard to We don't have a category for that sometimes. And this week is no exception in the category of hard teachings. Thank you, Pastor. And I would add that in at least one way, our passage this morning is also an internal bookend, an inclusion that began after the calling out and the equipping and the empowering and the sending of the 12 disciples up through chapter 6 with the account of the death of John the Baptist. The forces arrayed against Jesus and his message have been building as his ministry expands. And we can see that over the next few Sundays, the chapter 10, where we are now, is serving as a pivot point in Mark's account. From this point on, we'll be accelerating rapidly to Jerusalem, to Christ's passion. This morning, I'm going to ask us to lift our eyes, because at its core, this passage is not so much about you or me, as it may appear on the surface. It's always important to remember when approaching the ancient texts of the scriptures that this wasn't written to us. Remember, it was written to first century Roman Christians. Rather, it was preserved and handed down for us. So bear with me, as I believe the gospel application that we will seek to glean may be more relevant than any moral application you may be expecting to hear. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your word is true and some of it is hard to understand and accept. Please help me as I share from this portion of scripture and help us to have the humility and the faith to receive what you have for us this morning. Merciful Lord, please look with compassion upon all of our deepest needs and our regrets and our shames and our desires and purify our disordered affections, that we all may see your eternal glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And may we see, believe, and follow him anew this morning. Amen. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him, And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So where is the there? He's leaving. So remember, he had spent most of his time, most of his ministry was in the Galilee area, in the region of Capernaum. And then he had gone north, uh, crossing the border into Tyre at one point. And then he moved east towards Caesarea Philippi. Um, And this was at the base of Mount Hermon, as Pastor Don reminded us a few weeks ago, likely the place of Christ's transfiguration. And then from there, 
He went south, back, back down to the region of Galilee and Capernaum. And no, I'm not going to have a map. That's Don's purview. And so from there, so they, they've gone kind of Galilee, gone north, now they've gone east a little bit, and now they're coming, they went back down to Galilee, and now they're going further south toward Jerusalem and further east, so they're on the other side of the Jordan, into the region of Judea, across the Jordan in an area called Perea. This was the area of Herod Antipas. And why is this significant? Because Herod is the Roman puppet ruler who had imprisoned and beheaded John the Baptist, if you remember that from a few weeks ago. And recall that his beef with John was over his public comments and teaching regarding Herod's behavior involving divorce and illicit marriage. And once again, Jesus draws a crowd. Once again, he begins to give of himself to them. This is what he does, Mark tells us. Then verse 2, so the Pharisees then come up to Jesus in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So the crowds had assembled, and with the assembled crowds, always going to include detractors. The Pharisees considered themselves to be strict adherents to the law of Moses. They were the rule makers for keeping the law, because there was Moses' law, and then there were layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of laws to keep you from breaking these laws, right? And they were the arbiters of the application. So while it's clear they are the antagonists in the gospel accounts most of the time, with few exceptions, it is important, I think, to not gloss over our own tendencies, my own tendency, to behave self-righteously as they do toward Jesus and his teaching, especially when it challenges what I'm putting my trust in. My efforts and attempts at getting it right cannot bear Savior weight. Only Christ can. We must listen to him. Mark tells us that they asked Jesus a question in order to test him. Their inquiry was not sincere, and they both knew it. In this sitting, in this setting, with lots of witnesses, the Pharisees' intent was likely to get Jesus to say something in public that would put him in the same hot water with Herod that John the Baptist had found himself in. And there's little doubt that they hoped it would have a similar outcome. This question was political and pernicious. They were not looking for moral clarity. Verse 3, so Jesus answers them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus asked the question, what did he command? And what did they reply? Well, he allowed a man to, right? So already you can feel some, change, some things happening here. Knowing them and their motives, Jesus answers this question with a question. Immediately flipping the script, immediately reframing the debate, and precluding the political intent. He assumes the position in this moment as master teacher, and he puts them in the position of student, now having to defend an argument. Jesus is brilliant. <laughs> He's the most brilliant human alive. Marvel at him. They're on their heels and they blurt out, well, of course divorce is allowed in the law of Moses. Just fill out the form and dismiss her. The way they answer immediately reveals the heart that Jesus is wanting to expose. They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, 
and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, then and in it. And they omit, they omit the part the trails. Because this really wasn't a rule for divorce. It's a rule about what's proper related to marriage and remarriage in their context, specific to how a woman is to be treated in divorce. Namely, she's not to be passed back and forth like a piece of property. Moses is saying, if or when a man marries and then divorces her, this is the command. So their answer was far from what Moses was actually commanding on the subject. Divorce in the ancient Near East was not a contract between equals. It was weighted heavily in the favor of the man, almost exclusively, with very few of any protections afforded to the woman. And the religious leaders of the day weren't even in agreement on the particulars of how to apply Moses' comments on the grounds for divorce. This phrase, because he is displeased and finds something indecent about her, is at best ambiguous. Some schools of thought interpreted this strictly and in moral terms, infidelity, those kinds of things. But others applied it much more liberally to cover anything the husband found displeasing in his wife. The Halal school or Hillel school uh, even um, comments that even if she burns the food. So while the region of, uh, while in the region of Samaria, Jesus had encountered a woman victimized by this cultural devaluation of marriage. We read about her in John chapter four. And Jesus said to the woman at the well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This was clearly a significant moment. And so we're going to come back to that in just a minute. Back to verse five. And Jesus said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're trying to corner Jesus into unwittingly indicting King Herod again. Instead of answering, Jesus asks them what they understood Moses' teaching to be. And Jesus, knowing that they allowed divorce and would have to defend themselves, also knew they would appeal to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So then Jesus cuts directly to the heart of the matter. At best, this portion of Scripture, this part of the law, was an accommodation because of the sinful selfishness of humanity. Human relationships suffered the effects of the fall just as much as all of the other creation did. And women were particularly powerless in these proceedings, as I mentioned a moment ago. And at best, they could petition a court to force a husband to issue a writ of divorce if it was just unbearable for her. But this law was included to at least provide some sense of dignity to a woman in a culture that considered women in a very practical way to be property and expended, extending very little standing to women in general. So Jesus continues. He goes, no, no, this is put in here because you guys are a mess. But, verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female from Genesis 1, 27. Made in the image and likeness of God himself. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From Genesis 2, 24. So we're, we're quite a few books earlier than Deuteronomy now. We're going all the way back to the beginning. And then Jesus adds, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So after making them establish Moses' teaching as the standard, Jesus dismisses their tried appeal to a particular portion or nuance of the law and takes them back to first principles. The original intent for marriage was to be an unbroken, lifelong union between a man and a woman who were both made in the image and likeness of God, reflecting God's relationship with humanity. Divorce was only acknowledged as an action people took in response to the selfishness of sinful humanity, not an approval of his will for mankind. Once again, they were exposed to have strained out the gnat and choked on a camel by focusing on the wrong aspect to justify their own behavior, but probably more the behavior of the ruling class. Mark 10, verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. They couldn't leave well enough alone. Thank you, guys. They, are still, they were still processing the implications of this teaching. They're going, wait a minute. This isn't what we understand. It's not what the rabbis start talk, talk about. So verse 11, and he, so he says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus doubles down on this by moving the whole discussion from legal terms. This is where they were, that's where they were living. Just fill out the paperwork and move on. He's moving it from legal terms to moral terms. This is unheard of. Because it matters. Jesus is saying it matters whose we are. It matters who we reflect. And it matters how we conduct ourselves in light of those things. He then elevates the dignity of the woman in marriage by stating something that no rabbi would say. The man is actually committing a sin against his wife. This is shocking. It's, it's extremely countercultural to put men in the same moral obligation as his wife. Mark even adds that Jesus balances this admonition for the newly empowered woman. Oh, you're in the same boat. If she divorces her husband, she's in the same situation. So that would not have been allowed in Judaism, but it would have been for who? The Roman audience that Mark is writing to. Remember, that's who was reading this. So in Rome, the woman could divorce her husband. So that's a lot. There's our 12 verses. Let's recap a couple of the flowing streams here. We've talked about Mark's intention for including this in this particular place as he transitions in the narrative to Jesus setting his sights on Jerusalem. We've marveled at Christ's ability to get behind the pretense of the religious leaders and expose their own hardness of heart. And we've seen Christ elevate the dignity of women and proclaim the sanctity of marriage and reinforce the moral implications of divorce. So in our time related uh, remaining, I would like to unpack that last point just a bit more, and then examine some gospel application. I think the main and plain teaching on the subject of marriage and divorce from this text is that the father ordained, clearly, 
from what Christ said, the Father ordained the institution of marriage and its design, with Jesus adding what God has joined together, let no man separate. This predates Moses' law, and it's the standard of God's will and intention for his creation. That's a good thing, and it's the state. It's the stated um, fact of the matter. Jesus, uh, I think we also glean from this that Jesus had a higher view of marriage than the religious elite did, certainly more than the culture did. I think we can relate to that somewhat. Divorce was not to be an inconsequential decision decided at the whim of a disgruntled husband, specifically. I think we see that the dignity of humankind as is, is made in the image and likeness of God applies to both men and women. And there's probably no more beautiful passage for this than Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5, where we, sat, where we discover that marriage is a platform for mutual submission and service to one another. It's a reflection of Christ's role and the church's role and the marvelous mystery of this relationship as a picture of the gospel and how we're to relate to each other in light of what Christ has done for us as our groom and the church as the bride of God. I think we see that Christ's teaching here that divorce was an accommodation due to the effects of our fallen nature that Christ came to redeem, I might add. Christ moves divorce from the context of a mere legal maneuver into the category of morality. It's not just a pragmatic decision. And as a rule, we should avoid divorce as an option in our minds. I was uh, doing our, the wedding cer ceremony yesterday, and I just point blank said that. Just take that out of your vocabulary to the best of your ability. Just stay as much as you can. Just work hard to stay faithful in it. Now, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ has already communicated that the stakes are a lot higher than we think they are. In Matthew chapter 5, Christ is teaching, and he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, so he's referring back to the law, that you are not to commit murder. But I tell you that if you hate someone from the heart, and call them, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. He says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have a lustful thought about another person, you've committed adultery already in your heart. He says, he, he talks about oaths and making vows and, not, and breaking them. And then he gets... He says revenge. He talks about revenge. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. And he prefaces this teaching in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's running up against that in this encounter we see in Mark 10, right? Their understanding of the law was here, here's, here's Christ. So there, there must be more going on here because we know that divorce is not the impardonable sin. Neither is adultery any more than murder or breaking an oath or getting revenge would be. 
We know that these are sins that have consequences, but they can be confessed and repented of. And I would add that who among us has kept the moral law of God perfectly? According to his standard, not the standard of the religious teachers who are always looking for an angle. So I'm just going to ask us a question. It's a little audience participation. If you have ever had a lustful, hateful, vengeful thought or intention or ever broken your word, raise your hand. We're all in the same boat. Brothers and sisters, this is not about our ability or lack thereof to turn back the clock or to hang our heads in shame or to carry guilt around. St. Paul, blinded by self-righteousness, had rejected Jesus as Messiah. He had persecuted the church and he had wholeheartedly approved the martyrdom of St. Stephen. Don't you think he would have given anything to turn the clock back on that? And I'm convinced that these memories, the memory of his irreversible decision was the thorn in his flesh. And what was God's answer to him begging for relief from this? My grace is sufficient for you because in your weakness, I am made powerful, just as it is for us. And then Paul could say with peace in his heart, I, by the grace of God, I am what I am. All of it. All of it. So what's the moral big picture? Let's enter into a marriage with the intent to keep our vows, to stay faithful, to raise godly offspring, as we see in Malachi chapter 2, and to promote societal stability. It's important. It's a good thing. Not everybody gets married. Not everybody stays married. Not everybody's married to the person they started with. That's okay. It is what it is. His grace is sufficient for us. But let's go into this, if we do, with the intent of keeping our vows. Let's stay faithful. Decades and decades. Decades and decades. It can happen. There are examples. And then fight for your marriage. Not all of us have decades and decades. Not all of us have had a smooth road. So as far as it depends on you, even in difficult circumstances, fight for your marriage. It's not the end of the world if things didn't work out. But two wrongs don't make a right. So resolve to be faithful in your current situation and never despair of God's mercy. With the Lord is plenteous forgiveness. His grace is sufficient, and he makes things new. So this leads us now to the gospel big picture. Remember earlier on, I referred to the woman at the well. After Jesus ex exposes the circumstances of, his, of her life and then reveals himself to her, it's breathtaking. John chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus is talking to her and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman says to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll tell us all things. I hear what you're saying. God's seeking worshipers are going to do it right. I don't even know why you're talking to me. And so I'll come and straighten this out. And Jesus said to her, I who speak am he. I'm talking to who I want to talk to about this. I am straightening this out for you. So she drops her bucket. The woman leaves her water jar and went away to town. She probably didn't walk, right? She's going. She left the water and she's going. And she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did and didn't judge me, didn't reject me, didn't condemn me. Could he be the one? Is it possible? Is this possible that the Father would seek a worshiper from me? Jesus tells this woman that the Father is seeking worshipers. And she replies, yeah, maybe someday. And Jesus reveals himself to her, to this woman, in the middle of all of her mess, and he offers her no judgment or condemnation, he no dismissal until she gets her life straightened out, no hope deferred to another day or better circumstances, and no thought that you just don't qualify. He just looks at her and he extends the only thing she needs, himself. Probably the only man, other than her father, who ever looked at her like that. And he does the same for you and for me. He just offers grace over and over and over again. He cuts through our pretense. He cuts through our defenses. He exposes the motives of our heart. He never asks us to clean up first. He doesn't even ask us to untangle our mess. He just simply encounters us, and he reveals himself to us, and he offers himself to us, and he forgives us, and he makes us whole again. And if he says anything, he looks at us and says, now go and sin no more. Just walk in this. It changes everything. And he offers us himself again this morning in the elements of the Thanksgiving meal. My identity is sinner. We all admitted it today. He is Lord and Master and Savior. And he's meek. And he's gentle. So we respond with repentance, which is not a self-flagellating regret over past decisions. It is a perpetual turning and returning to Jesus to find what we've been looking for somewhere else. And we throw ourselves on his mercy and we receive what everyone receives when they do this, grace. Believe this today. Believe it again. Believe that the one who knows all that I ever did is still whispering, even through my resistance to his love, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray.
Lord, we need your grace to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts and minds to understand, for this is the only way for us to turn to you and be healed. Make our hearts fertile soil to produce a harvest of repentance in response to your gospel this morning and be present with us in the broken bread and poured out wine. We worship you now and forever. Amen. This moment is for Christians. Communion servers will be on both sides of the platform and in the back. There's some prepackaged cups if you need those. We read in the scriptures that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he continued, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. You may come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.